Up next, the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show with Snowden Bishop. After this message. If you're in cannabis, you've heard your colleagues say it. MJ BizCon is the conference of the year you have to be at. It's where deals get done, where you find your next business opportunity, and where you make the connections that matter among the 30,000 cannabis professionals, investors, and business owners from every segment of the industry. With over 1,300 exhibitors and 12 educational tracks created by the editors of MJ Biz Daily, there's no place like MJ BizCon to equip your business for growth. See you in Las Vegas, December 11th through 13th. Register today at mjbizcon.com. And now, it's time for the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show with Snowden Bishop. Listen in as Snowden interviews cannabis industry pioneers, marijuana experts, policymakers, medical practitioners, patients, and other amazing individuals with compelling stories to share. It all happens right now. Here's the cannabis reporter, Snowden Bishop. Hi, and welcome back to the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. I'm Snowden Bishop, and I'm happy you could join us. With all of the political chaos dominating the news cycles lately, some of the most consequential policy changes aren't getting the media attention they deserve. I mean, some of the most monumental rollbacks of environmental regulations and consumer health protections happen almost daily under the radar. For example, just this week, the Environmental Protection Agency announced that it would restrict the amount of scientific data that can be used to craft public health policy. I mean, really? This falls on the heels of the USDA dismissing hundreds of scientists who inform safe practices in agriculture and executive orders to undo vital public health legislation such as the Clean Air Act earlier this year. It comes as no surprise, considering that all the data related to climate change was deleted from the public-facing EPA website in 2017, as if that would erase the science behind it or give credence to climate denial. For the past couple of decades, there's been a groundswell of science warning us of impending doom related to our contributions to climate change that has gone largely underreported in the media until recently. And it's starting to get some attention because in the last couple of years, we've seen a dramatic rise in cataclysmic climate events, with whole regions being obliterated by massive hurricanes, tsunami-like storm surges, thousand-year floods, and catastrophic wildfires. Despite the valiant efforts of environmental nonprofits and niche media outlets covering the work they do, mainstream media has been slow to connect the new normal with man-made causes with any sense of urgency. And with all the positive reporting about the benefits of enacting the Green New Deal, there's just as much propaganda from the climate deniers about how it won't work. It's pie in the sky, unrealistic, inconvenient. You'll have to trade your car for a bicycle and lose your job if you work in a coal mine. But it's important for anyone making a judgment about the Green New Deal to understand that those who are producing the negative propaganda about it have a vested interest in making sure it doesn't succeed. Not ironically, they hail from the same corporate sectors that convinced the public and Congress to ban cannabis in 1937. Why? because those industries sought to eliminate competition for the new fossil fuel industries to make paper, textiles, composites, fuel, and nearly everything else that was once made with hemp. 
not to mention pharmaceuticals, which largely replaced medicinal cannabis at the same time. Since then, the damage caused by the prohibition of hemp and cannabis has caused a major health crisis, and unless we reverse course now, it will only get worse. How we go about doing that is returning to more organic ways of creating the products we've come to rely on as a society. The Green New Deal is a great way to start, but I'm convinced that cannabis is a key component that will make the Green New Deal truly green. And that's the topic of today's show, and my guests have some great ideas about how to make that possible. Trent Pash and Mike Lewis are co-founders of Third Wave Farms, a company that has set out to revitalize America's rural economies with game-changing new technology and regenerative agricultural practices. They met while working on a project with a company developing CBD products, and through this project came numerous discussions about the challenges and opportunities in hemp. A friendship was born, and soon after that, Third Wave Farms was formed. Trent hails from Oregon, where he was raised in a farming family. He's achieved a great deal of success in the food industry, starting in sales and working his way up through executive leadership positions. As CEO of Third Wave, Trent oversees the C-Team business development strategies and raises capital for the company's expansion. Mike is a third-generation farmer from Farmington, Maine, and having served in the Army, he later founded Growing Warriors, which is a veteran-oriented security project. In 2014, he began growing hemp for the Kentucky Pilot Program while serving on the Kentucky Hemp Commission. He then became the first federally permitted hemp farmer in the U.S. since Prohibition and worked to help pass the 2014 Farm Bill. He has since won numerous awards for his innovations in agriculture and currently serves as treasurer on the board of the Hemp Industries Association. Welcome to both of you. I'm grateful you could join me and I'm looking forward to this conversation. So thanks for being here. Thanks for having us. So I was really intrigued by Third Wave. And the reason is that, as I said in my opening, I am a big believer that hemp is key to a carbon neutral future and the importance of getting back to a hemp infrastructure. So I was really very intrigued by what you're doing at Third Wave. So before we get into that, though, tell me a little bit about yourselves. Trent, tell me a little bit about you so that our audience understands where you're coming from. Sure. Yeah. So my background is primarily the last 20 plus years I've been in the food and ingredient space, um, commodity supply chain for food ingredients. Um, I started out, uh, believe it or not, in the culinary field, gosh, 1991, um, and worked my way up through the ranks there and then found my way into a sales job with a food company. And from there, just started going into the supply side of things with a seafood company and then eventually running a trading desk here out here in Oregon for a commodities firm, um, primarily sourcing edible oils and seeds for different food companies um, such as Costco, Walmart, uh, a lot of brands that are in the natural food space. I was really a part of that whole non-GMO movement um, as well as organic and more sort of sustainable products throughout this food supply chain. And that's actually how Mike and I met was when I was on a consulting project for a company in Southern California. And Mike and I had our first introduction there. 
And Mike, how about you? How did you get your start into this? Well, to hemp accidentally, um, <laughs> quite accidentally <laughs> and blindly. Um, yeah, I, you know, I've, I've, my primarily my background has been in um, farm advocacy um, and, and trying to create, um, you know, economic infrastructure for for rural communities like you know the the one I live in, right? I mean, I. I drive my kids, you know, 30 miles a day for school because there's no jobs and tax revenue to support decent schools in my community. And so that's, that's where I came into hemp. I, I was trying to, to replace some of the missing tobacco revenue from the, from the tobacco buyouts. And that sort of gutted all the, all the agriculture in rural Appalachia and, and sort of the burley belt. Um, and, you know, I really came into hemp looking for ways to create infrastructure. And in, in 2013, when I met um, then Agriculture Commissioner, now Congressman Comer, on a, on a separate project for, for uh, veterans, a uh, uh, homegrown by heroes labeling scheme, um, I, uh, you know, we started talking about the, the needs for infrastructure and we started talking about hemp. And, you know, the thing that I was hearing was that the the net one of the negative points that they were throwing at us was there's no rural infrastructure to to process this and I'm thinking well duh that's that's what we need in in uh, in rural communities is we need jobs and infrastructure to process and so that's that's how I came into hemp and I think that you know that was the mindset I, I came into when I met Trent and we we started third wave. It's interesting that you mention Congressman Comer. We had him on the show about two years ago when he was pushing the hemp legislation. And it's it's really interesting how far we've come since then, because, you know, who knew that just it, it seemed like it happened so suddenly when when the hemp legislation actually passed as part of last year's farm bill. And I think that with the legalization of hemp, we have some huge opportunities to start bringing jobs into rural communities that have once depended on like coal production, for example, or tobacco, like you said, and really build this out. But what do you think is missing right now? I mean, aside from the obvious, you know, there's an infrastructure that is needed to be able to process hemp into commodities that can replace those made with fossil fuels, for example. But what do you think is the big step that is needed right now that can either be solved with legislation or just with education in order to pursue this greater goal of having hemp become a much bigger part of the supply chain for these products? Well, I mean, I, I think from, from my, my perspective, um, and trends may be very different. I think that's part of why we work so well together, but, um, um, you know, the first, you know, the first thing we have to think about is how we build this out. Right. Because if we see it playing out right now, we're seeing really big companies centralizing processing and centralizing manufacturing. Right. And that's, that's what got us where we are. So it, it's almost like, what, from my perspective, what I see is us taking this amazing potential and immediately trying to shift it as quickly as we can into the business as usual system that that gutted my my town's economy in the first place, right? So, I mean, the first thing is how do we decentralize this, and how do we make sure that the communities have a vested interest in how we get we we implement this? Because our our fossil fuel problem isn't 
just driven by production. It's, it's driven by consumption, manufacturing, and distribution. And if, you know, my concern is if we go too quickly, then we're taking away the ability for communities and cooperatives and things of this nature to start taking root in, in these rural communities. And I think, you know, that's, that's how we have to look at this first and foremost. Um, and so the answer is we, we have to figure out how to pass common sense legislation that protects rural communities that want to invest in cooperative infrastructure for their farmers that supports, a, you know, a carbon neutral growth for this industry. Yeah, and I, I mean, I totally agree with Mike, even though we come from different worlds. And I think that's part of our our synergy is that, you know, I made the joke odd couple, but, you know, we just come at it from two different ways, but then somehow we meet in the middle and understand each other. So it's been a really great relationship in that sense. But I think it's, you know, being a hemp company and thinking that hemp can be a total solution for this, I, you know, I don't think that's the answer. I think it's part of the solution, but it's, it's definitely, uh, you know, a much bigger, much bigger issue than just looking at converting hemp over as a main source for, for everything. It's, it's not the total solution, but it's certainly part of it. Well, at least for now, it's not the total solution because obviously, like you said, the infrastructure still needs to be built out. But when you look back on history and how the founding fathers of our nation actually depended upon hemp for so many things and really saw it as a path to prosperity for not just the farmers, but for everyone. And, you know, I just, when you look at how much virgin pulp is being used to make uh, disposable papers, for example, paper towels and toilet paper to, you know, for the most obvious, and how we use petrochemicals to make disposable plastics, you know, that are part of everyone's household and, you know, comprise like at least 50% of the trash that's taken to landfills. I mean, it would seem that hemp would provide such an obvious answer to those problems, wouldn't you think? Yeah, I, I agree with that. Go ahead, Mike. Go ahead, Mike. No, I mean, it, it absolutely it does. I mean, and even if you just think about our, you know, but, um, you know, to Transpoint, I mean, just in terms of it being in a crop rotation, right? I mean, having it in a solid crop rotation, you know, is, is going to eliminate, you know, significant amounts of um, of carbon being emitted. I mean, 15 or 16 percent of our carbon emissions globally can can most definitely be contributed to bad farming practices. So, um, you know, proper farming practices, and like you said, then using the residue from those proper farming practices to put into paper for, you know, manufacturing and all of that. I mean, the potential is amazing, you know, and I, I don't think any of us, um, any, any of us deny this, anybody with, with common sense wouldn't deny that the potential is amazing, you know, but I think that the struggle that I always face is how are we realizing that potential and, you know, how, how do we create something that it's not just sustainable for the land, but sustainable for, for the communities that are, that are doing this good work, you know. I was going to just add that, you know, supply and demand is sort of the economic driver that, that picks winners and losers. And I think with hemp, you know, there's obviously a risk to some of those current um, chosen winners in the market, I would say, that that creates a potential threat. And so you asked earlier what the 
what we can do in terms of education and legislation. I think from my standpoint, it really starts with educating. Um, I think people have to understand what the potential is for this crop and how it can support, you know, a different shift in communities, rural communities in particular, um, for economics. And I think the old drivers of supply and demand with things like, you know, fossil fuels or or, or other carbon-based, you know, energy sources, I think it's, it's going to be an education process to make people understand that. Well, and also an education process for legislators as well, because I was looking into this a couple of months ago, and I've been uh, writing a white paper for the last six months that, you know, it, it keeps evolving as I learn more. When you look at the subsidies that are now being put into some of the most profitable companies in the world, you know, uh, namely, uh, let's start with like Exxon, $11 billion dollars in tax incentives that they could be paying into the economy that are being given to them to proliferate the our dependence on fossil fuels. And I mean, there are a lot of different points of view on this, and I recognize that. Um, but if you took even just a portion of those subsidies and started putting them into uh, hemp infrastructure, it, it, it seems as though... <sighs> The people who are who are appropriating those funds, or you know, appropriating the incentives to fossil fuels, could be educated to understand that appropriating some of those uh, incentives into a new hemp infrastructure would really help. But how do we get that message across to Congress? I'll, I'll let well, Mike take I mean, that one first. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I don't. I mean, this is something I've been working at for a long time, so I don't have an answer. But I, you know, I think to to further the the point that you're making, I mean, most of these incentives that are given are, you know, those incentives are taken away from the communities that are, you know, having bad land use management or you know fracking or whatever's happening. So. I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's critical that some of those incentives, there's a, there's a way to, and not just hemp. I mean, I think that local food production, right? You spoke about our, our founding fathers. I mean, they, they screamed about hemp for independence, but they, you know, they also um, screamed about people being resilient, independent, and that's that's what truly makes us free. And I mean, so not even just hemp production, how do we turn that back into local food production systems? How do we take the money that we're incentivizing them and, and reinvest it back into these economies? And I mean, that's not a conversation anybody, but probably a handful of us <laughs> want to have, you know. Um, but it's absolutely right. I mean, they're, they're taking money, those incentives are taking money that could be used to revitalize communities and put in infrastructure that, yes, allowed, you know, a town like mine to put in a small textile mill to, to you know, stop growing cotton, right? Let's start growing hemp. Um, and just on land use, I mean, cotton is, you know, I think what... 3% of global agriculture production, but it uses a third of the water and a third of the pesticides. So yeah, we should be using that money. But, you know, I, I mean, we've been trying to be creative about how we can get money for these types of projects, you know, but it's not an easy thing. And nobody wants to have those conversations because those, because of the way the system operates, you know, and we don't well, have enough money to, to have a big enough voice at this point in time. Yeah. You mentioned the, the BT cotton is a huge problem. And when you consider that a lot of the fiber that comes from cotton could be grown a lot more sustainably with hemp, which uses a fraction of 
the water and you can grow it without toxic pesticides. You can actually make your own pesticides out of the compost of hemp. But also what I wanted to mention was that along the lines of the BT cotton, uh, there's a, a monopoly when it comes to Monsanto and the seeds that are being given to farmers that keep them in this perpetual chain of dependence on those seedless crops as so they have to keep buying the crops and it's poisoning our land. And I'm not educated enough to speak on subsidies that they get, but I know that, you know, there's like the fox guarding the hen house when it comes to Monsanto's lobby actually running things, you know, in our USDA. And for a long time, they've been a part of our agricultural advisory committees in Congress and, you know, with their lobbies especially. And I wonder, as hemp becomes more and more popular, is this going to help uh, rescue, if you will, the the farmers that have become dependent upon it or pushed out of the market altogether in food production because of these big farms consolidating and pushing out the smaller farmers. I mean, how can hemp be a solution for that? Well, you're on with two guys that hope we figure part of it out. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's all complex. I mean, the, the subsidies rule, you know, you're absolutely right. I mean, that's, that's the way it works. And I mean, I, like I said, I mean, there's, there's thousands of organizations that have, have worked on this, you know, and, and, you know, not to harp on the BT cotton, but, you know, I have friends that are, are you know, first responders that are part of these active groups that, you know, our first responders are getting cancer faster rates because, you know, this is heat, cotton their under inner cotton layer is bt cotton and it's leaching right because there's still you can't grow a plant with with bt and not have bt and other chemicals that come out in the plant material you know so these guys are getting sick it's in our clothes it's everywhere and you know i don't know how we incentivize. i mean there's two ways right i mean i know how we do it there's two ways number one we vote when there's an election and we vote with our our whole conscience and then you know and the other is we vote when we shop so i mean as consumers you know i mean half the problem is a lobby and i see the other half is us it's all of us it's the world we live in and the way in which we consume and not much is going to change until we recognize that at least in my yeah and, and from my perspective it goes back to that winners and losers piece of conversation that you know right now the way it's set up is that that winners are chosen you know chosen um, and the way that we permeate or get into that that side of the industry is to start putting money into the system that's already in place. And, and hemp, a lot of people have taken a wait-and-see approach with this crop uh, to see what's going to happen and, and if it's actually going to come to fruition the way people have talked about it. But I think ultimately, if Mike and I are successful at what we are doing, we have the ability to, to sort of change that paradigm and start to shift the conversation where – this is not only, you know, just a CBD crop anymore. This is a, a fiber crop. This is a food source. This is this provides a lot of different alternatives that legislature legislators will li- listen to and get in communities. And the fact that Kentucky drove this, you know, tells you all you need to know. This was a this was a necessity for the state of Kentucky to sort of pivot off of tobacco and other other issues that Mike's well more informed than I am. Well, Kentucky has certainly led the way 
when it comes to hemp. And, you know, I, I credit Kentucky's national legislators with pushing hemp legislation through. And that's a really good thing. But, you know, we still have the problem of the big lobbies from the large farm companies, Monsanto namely, and trying to get legislators to pay attention to the smaller groups that don't have such large lobbying efforts in Washington is a challenge, I think, across the board, you know, no matter what the industry is. But if you had your druthers, if you had an audience right now with legislators, what would be your primary message? Trent, let's start with you and then go to Mike. Well, I think we do have an audience with legislators. I mean, I, I think legislators are listening. Um, if I had my druthers, you know, look, we're not going to come in as a hemp agribusiness and change the, change the rules, you know. Uh, but what we can do is we can come in with credibility with a track record of success and with a plan and to be a part of that conversation with legislators that to say look we're not the panacea we're not going to fix everything in the hemp space but we certainly can can shift the paradigm gradually and um and, and i think i think that opportunity is there um it's on us and other companies similar to us to execute and follow through with farmers and actually get the product to market so that uh, so that we do have those funds to play in, in the unfortunate space that we're in right now, which where money talks and lobbies are a necessity. But you know, if I had my druthers, that that rule book wouldn't exist. But it does, and so we have to play by those rules. Mike, and I, I you know I think that I, I would say first. I mean, I I think that the way that we we get the ear, <clears throat> as Trent said, is is by being successful and by you know, getting our infrastructure and getting our farmers paid and then saying, hey, here's a success story. And, you know, as far as if I was in front of them today, I mean, I, I don't think I would say anything different than what I say when I'm there. I, you know, I live in a small town that is poor, you know, obviously, you know, um, I guess American poor, <laughs> not, not, not to not to classify that with anything in third world countries, but I live in a poor community and there are no jobs. There's no infrastructure and my trees are getting cut down and my kids are, are going to waste the kids here on drugs. And that's because we need jobs and this, you know, you have to find a way to make sure that these jobs stay in my community and that my community gets paid fair for these jobs. And I mean, that's, that's what I always say. <laughs> I mean, and I, I don't think I would change that at all because that's, that's the truth. And we need to think about, to do that, we need to think about how we're deploying government money and how we're, you know, how we're building rural infrastructure because the way we're doing it now is not working. And I mean, that's the message. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's, that's, that's really the. Okay. Oh, sorry, just to add to that. I mean, that's really the third wave commitment, right? That's our business model. It's hub and spoke. So, for us to sort of start where we started, it was really how do we support farmers? That was our first question, and what we realized is that, you know, a lot of people were throwing seed in the ground, being promised, you know, X number of dollars per acre for the crop. And what they lacked was infrastructure. So third wave farms, really, that's our whole, that's our whole model is we go out, we invest in the infrastructure to support farmers in a given region, and then we expand that out nationally. And so 
that's that's kind of what our whole business model is, is is supporting that infrastructure in those rural communities like Mike's to to start to bring jobs back, to start to bring, you know, uh, mitigation of risk for farmers. So you read my mind when you added to that. And my next question was going to be, well, how do you engage the farmers? What what is your pitch when you when you do talk to farmers? Well, I, I you know, our our I mean, it's. Our, most of the people that are talking to farmers are farmers. So, I mean, it's it's not even really a pitch. It's just an understanding. I mean, whether it's me or Shelby or Jeff or any one of our other guys on, on the on the field talking to a farmer, we're, we know. I mean, we, we look around and, I mean, there's not a lot to talk about. So what we talk about is the, the upside and, you know, how we want them to be successful and how we want to help them integrate other crops. And, you know, we just explain our commitment, explain what we're passionate about. And, you know, I mean, there's not a lot of, it's not a big pitch. I mean, I, I think that we, we know what's going on on farms. We know what's happening on dairy farms. We know what's happening on, you know, grain and corn farms right now. I mean, it's, you know, so, I mean, it, it, I don't even think it's a pitch. I think the reality is we have to find ways to work together again, because this get bigger, get out model is not working. And we have to collaborate. And I, I think that farmers naturally want to collaborate. I mean, information is fairly free flowing from one farmer to the next in terms of production techniques. But I think the way that the infrastructure has been built, it, it's forced everybody into a silo. And we show up, let's break that silo. Let's start working with our neighbors and let's build some stuff that's going to support some production around here. And let's get some supply out of, you know, Kentucky or Indiana or. Oregon or wherever it is to market. Yeah, and I think what Mike's team does so well on the ag side is they, and, I, and Mike always mentions this to me, but I mean, he really manages expectations on a day-to-day -day basis with farmers. And, you know, I think we're, the industry we're in right now is so volatile and chaotic that there's a lot of promises being made out there to farmers that just aren't coming true. So, you know, what we really try to do is say, okay, how can we help support one way is through infrastructure, which is really Mike's team on the ag side. Then we also try to find markets, viable markets for their product itself so that they have some understanding of price and where this is going to go. Um, I think that's really what bridges the gap between Mike's world and my world is he runs, you know, a seamless operation on the ag side. And then together we put our heads together and figure out how to do the rest. That makes sense completely. And the advantages for farmers to start rotating their crops, from my understanding, it's really beneficial to the soil. It's a great way to sequester carbon, to relax the land from the chemicals that are being used on, you know, the other crops. What are some of the other advantages that you explain to people and why they should begin to integrate hemp into their farming operations? Well, I, I think that, you know, there's enough information now, and I think by and large, most farmers understand the value of crop rotation, but it's the current um, subsidy program and insurance programs that hold that back. Um, you know, it's, it's in, you know, corn and beans are, you know, those are insured. Um, you know, a, a clover cover crop is not. You know, so corn beans, corn beans is what pays the bill safely and securely. So, I mean, I think the knowledge is out there and, 
you know, I, I think it, you know, transition to, um, you know, this is something that we've invested in, right? I mean, we, we funded research at Kentucky State University to figure out what the best rotations of crops are for a long term. It, it builds biomass, it stores carbon. I mean, every time you till a or, or run a piece of equipment over the field, you're losing carbon. You know, so there are significant values to cover crops, but it's just not incentivized. Um, but we, you know, we're we're funding research right now that's based on a, a five, seven year crop rotation. And, you know, some of that, you know, is, is just stuff that's getting turned in to add biomass and nutrients. Some of it's a quick 30 day crop that's aliopathic and is going to, you know, break up some pests and diseases. So, I mean, there's there's a lot of things that cover crops provide in terms of benefit for the land and the soil but the the subsidy programs are just not uh, there to incentivize people to really do that so the only incentive is you know a 15 to 20 percent increase at you know at the at the wholesale level for for being organic or regenerative organic or you know whatever the next label is well it's interesting that cover crops aren't insured and you know, hemp is more than just a cover crop, too. I mean, it's it's a great rotational crop that's also something that can be monetized because there's a demand for it. Isn't that right? Absolutely. I mean, you know, a, 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 a hemp grain crop is you know, leaving, you know, anywhere from six to 7,000 pounds of, of residue on, on the field, right? And that residue in, in the hemp plant is primarily cellulose, which is primarily carbon, you know? So you're, you know, just growing a grain crop and mulching your residue is a tremendous benefit to your soil. And then you can drill a crop right into the top of it without having to turn the soil over again. I mean, so there's, yeah, and then the same thing for for fiber crops, right? I mean, there's there's a tremendous benefit to it, whether it's just as a a quick winter kill crop, so that you have a, a mulch for the next spring, or whether it's a, a byproduct of your primary crop. There's a tremendous value in it, and the amount of biomass and long taproot allows it to scavenge micronutrients from way down. So, I mean, it's yeah, it's a great recycler of nutrients in the soil. Yeah, and as far as sequestering carbon is concerned, it's right up there with, it's actually more than flax and and others that are known for their ability to sequester carbon. So, yeah, I mean, it, it seems like the upside is just tremendous for farmers. So is there anything else that you think is really important for farmers or legislators to know about what you're doing. And let me ask you this, with the infrastructure that you're investing in, what are some of the specifics? So we're, we've been investing in, the main one was a dryer this year, which is a, a dryer of, it was actually a converted dryer from the hops system. So we can dry large scale amounts of, of hemp for CBD, but we're also investing in other components of the infrastructure like trimmers, um, you know, long-term, you know, we're long on, the whole crop, not just CBD, but obviously CBD was the way we're going to monetize a lot of this. And we're looking at, you know, decortication and other aspects down the road that we'll be able to support sort of that old, you know, hub and spoke farm infrastructure, which we find with the grain silos and guys processing grain. You know, that's that's what their wave is and is moving towards. 
That's fantastic. And then what about supply chain assistance? Well, that's a great question, and I'm going to jump in on that, even though it's not my lane, because I, I do want to add uh, another uh, <laughs> another big portion of, of what we've invested in is technology that that provides an extra layer of security for our farmers. Um, you know, we have a Dr. Voigt working for us on a you know an analytics program that includes. Um, multi-spectrum lighting uh drones reading back data that you know pre-spots uh, fungus or insects or you know moisture issues also helps monitor the crops on a regular basis and that does feed directly into the supply chain because then all of that data is fed up in from seed to all of those thermal images and then to uh, all of the test results for the soil and the crops, and then it goes to Trent's side, tagged and bagged, ready for his supply chain story. That's all I've got. Yeah, so it's, we're really building a complete end-to-end track and trace system, which is going to be, you know, right now is not the requirement, but we're just, because that's the industry, we, we came from the food industry, a lot of us, we understand where it's going. And so we're trying to, you know, leapfrog that and get ahead of that. Uh, to be compliant before any FDA sort of rulings, but we are really excited about everything that Brian, Dr. Boyd's doing in the supply chain, as well as my team and mine. I heard a puppy. Guilty. Guilty. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. So tell me about Dr. Voigt. Yeah, Doctor, um, we uh, recently just hired Dr. Brian Voigt from uh, the Gund Institute of Ecology and Economics. He's a multi-spectral uh, analytics doctor. He, he works on imaging, uh, data collection. Uh, he's really, really lucky to have him. He runs all of our quality control um, or testing programs, but his primary specialty is in multi-spectral mapping and imaging and data analysts. That sounds pretty interesting. So when you're talking about all of that, is this for outdoor and indoor? crops or just indoor crops no this is this is all outdoor our um our drones are equipped with multi-spectrum cameras so they see light at different frequencies and when we adjust certain frequencies of light we're able to spot different things in the field like a you know it creates a different color image and then that image gives us information that image then gets turned into well this is you know a water leak or this is botrytis in the field or this is a corn earworm starting to develop and it's all based on what spectrums of light they set the cameras to that is absolutely fascinating i haven't heard of this and i suppose that for hemp that's being grown for medicinal purposes for cbd that would be an incredibly important tool. We certainly think so, yes. Um, you know, it gives us complete track and trace, um, both from both for the consumer side and from the, you know, the regulatory and compliance side, right? I mean, you know, our consumers are then, you know, directly connected back to the farm because it's, it's embedded in our tracking system. Wow, what an incredible tool. So... I learned something really important here. <laughs> Thank you for that. And then with that information, then you can start to establish protocols for mitigating some of the problems. Do you help with that as well? Yes, we have a complete set of production protocols. You know, we're 
essentially our model is very similar to how the tobacco used to work. You know, we have guys that will come out and visit the farms regularly. We have production protocols that will be, um, you know, controlled from a third wave hub, so to speak, um, that will notify farmers when they're supposed to do a certain, you know, say we're fertigating, we're going to fertilize on this day, we're going to fertilize this much per acre. Um, we'll be able to, they'll be able to take images and send those images to us and we'll be able to analyze pests. Um, something shows up. So it's, it's a, we've built a pretty clean communication system to help keep farmers safe and secure in their production. So what would be the advantages of using hemp as opposed to GMO corn for feed stock for livestock? Uh, well, I'll, I'll let, uh, I'll let Trent weigh in on the nutrition side, but just from a production side, um, you know, number one, uh, it would produce less methane because the, you know, the cattle can actually digest the the hemp seed. Um, and then, you know, the other larger reaching impact would be that less corn and, and soybean would be grown, which is one of the biggest issues we have today. And I'm, I'll, I'll let Trent weigh in on the nutrition side because he's smarter than I am at that time. <laughs> Well, I think from a protein standpoint, you know, hemp byproduct, hemp meal um, is very attractive for both dairy and for for uh, animal feed across the board. The, the problem has always been it's cost prohibitive at this point compared to, you know, competitors, competitor products, largely because of that other issue we talked about earlier, which is infrastructure. Um, you know, a byproduct of processing, you know, corn and soy um, you know, they can produce metric tons a minute on that type of material where, you know, hemp, we just don't have that infrastructure in play yet. So it's starting and we're doing some interesting things around that with the USDA, but it's going to take more time. And again, if we uh, if we come into a new space where there's potential winners already that are going to become losers because of hemp, then it's going to be a, a heavy lift. But we feel like it's definitely worth exploring and worth uh, worth driving that. And how do you, back to the supply chain, with some of the uses of hemp, people who are growing it for CBD, obviously there's a tremendous leftover byproduct or scraps and that sort of thing. I mean, are you educating people about how to use some of that waste product, or it wouldn't even be waste product, really? I mean, if if they're growing hemp for CBD, for example, then you've got large portions of the plant that are not being used in the CBD supply chain. How do you have them make use of the entirety of the plant if that's what they're specifically growing it for? Well, <laughs> to be, um, you know, the the answer is we we mow it in and add it back to the soil. Um, you know, and that is simply just a, a function of there's not enough um, weight. Um, you know, an acre of an acre of CBD is you know going to have two fifteen hundred to two thousand plants in it, so it, it doesn't become cost effective to to move it off this off the field because there's not enough biomass there. There's probably you know two to three hundred pounds of biomass that can be extracted from that field. So 
Tom. We just mulch it back in and put it in as a soil amendment. We, you know, we save money on our fertilizer. So, I mean, I, I guess that's still economic value for, for our farmers, but um, we've never found a, a valuable enough use for the for the amount of weight that's in there to justify the, the fuel expense of hauling it off, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah that... from the extraction from the extraction standpoint, so post farming into processing, you do see some waste product coming off the extraction side. That would be your your gums and waxes, um, you know, small amounts of meal. But at this point, on the meal side, it's just not it's not approved. Uh, for animal feed at this point, but it's moving in that direction. You know, the gums and waxes and, and lipids that are coming off the plant have complete viable uses in, you know, soap, detergent, uh, a lot of different applications there. So, you know, from our standpoint, we're looking at some of those, you know, aftermarkets and determining where we can keep adding value for the for the farm supply chain on that side. And, and we've got some interesting opportunities there that nothing fully developed. And are there are there companies that are there enough companies that are using that excess biomass after the extraction to make detergents and soaps and things like that? I mean, how are you how are you encouraging people to get into using that hemp or biomass in their production of those kinds of consumables? It's really the same process that we did with CBD. So we we start by going out and identifying those markets developing those markets and understanding what kind of relationships we can make. I mean, I know Mike's got a great relationship with Dr. Bronner's. Um, you know, they've certainly led the way in this, in that industry. Uh, you know, so the more sort of aftermarket companies we can build relationships like that with to do something with these byproducts is just going to continue to support, you know, our overall objective, which is to build value into the supply chain for farmers. Yeah. I I interviewed David Bronner about three years ago, actually, and what they're doing with hemp, and they've sort of been leading the way long before hemp legislation was even a twinkle in anyone's eye. But I imagine that, that they'd be a great buyer. But are there other companies? I mean, it, it seems like it's not caught on yet proven the model, right? So, you know, it's, and there is other companies out there making products with hemp now, probably in large part because of them, but, um, you know, we just need to keep proving that the proof of concept works with hemp across the board and, you know, we'll, we'll drive more companies in that direction through, through supply and demand. Yeah. And I, I think tapping into the organic market, the people who are producing organic products is, uh, a, a great place to start for the supply chain because of the way that hemp can be grown so much more efficiently than any other crop, <laughs> particularly cotton. So um, I heard recently that Levi's is actually going back to hemp for their jeans. Have you heard this? I read a, an article about it. Um, it came through my feed. Um, you know, I, I hope that it's it's not viscose, but you know, we'll. I guess we'll take a small victory if that's what it is. Yeah, well, <laughs> I think every small victory is a good thing. <laughs> so, yeah. Let me ask you something really quickly because I just thought of it as you said that there seems to have been uh, some mishaps in Oregon that I heard about through the grapevine about people buying what they thought were feminized seeds that turned out not to be that, and they've lost a lot of money. Do you know anything about this? 
Uh, my understanding, if you're talking about the same thing, is that it's an Oregon seed company, but it's a it's a Kentucky issue in terms of the the company that bought those seeds, and I won't name names. Um, but it, it seems like there were some promises made by a seed company, and some seed ended up in Kentucky, and it was not what was represented. At least that's the allegation. Yeah, that sounds about right. I think that's pretty common. I mean, it's pretty commonplace either there, or, you know, either on the seed side. I think this was just a much larger scale. But I mean, we see a lot of that. You know, people getting bad genetics on a smaller scale, and you know, it's just less high profile. But it, it seems like it's pretty prevalent. And for farmers who are just getting into this, how do they avoid this? How can they ensure that what they're getting is what they've been told they're getting? Well, that's hard because, you know, there's there's a lot of fake C of A's, but I mean, my, my, my best advice would be if it sounds too good to be true, move on, um, you know. Um, <clears throat> but I mean, you just have to do due diligence. You have to read the C of A's. You need to check with the breeder. You know, you, you need there's, there's a lot of due diligence to, that, that's required to make sure that you've got a a quality seed that, you know, whoever sold it to you had the right to sell it to you and whether it's a seed or a clone, you know, a lot of folks are buying clones as well. Yeah, and Mike mentioned this earlier, but we're, we're working directly with Kentucky State University there and we've, for the last two seasons, uh, planted cultivars with them for research. So, you know, make sure when you're buying seeds that you're working with a reputable partner if they can back it up with, you know, not only C of A's, but other information or research that's been done around it, that's that's going to be, you know, your best assurance. Yeah, great advice, I'm sure. So anyway, well, are there any um, any last thoughts that you think we haven't covered here that you'd like for people to know? Trent, let's start with you. No, I I'm, I'm actually can't think of anything off the top of my head right now, but... Um, Thank you for your time. Really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you, and we're excited to uh, to be exposed out there in the market. Well, I'm grateful that you know you were able to come and talk about this. I think it's one of the most important movements that we have going on right now. I mean, cannabis in general, but hemp particularly, especially with the legalization. And I just think the potential is just so enormous to revitalize farming communities and create jobs and create a more sustainable way of doing things in general, getting away from the fossil fuels and the petrochemicals that are used to grow food crops. And ugh, it, the potential is just endless. Mike, what about you? Any last thoughts for us? Uh, know your farmer about it. <laughs> know your farmer. Oh. I love that. Yeah. Know your farmer. Yeah. Elaborate. Well, I mean, it's. I think that we're, you know, socially we're disconnected, um, you know, from the land. I, you know, I think dispossession is a, is a very real thing, and I think that if you know your farmer, that means you're getting a little closer to the land, and that helps you see things a little more clearly, in my opinion. So, if you know your farmer, you at least know a little bit about land and land use. Yeah. And then the message to farmers: we have a large rural audience here at the Cannabis Reporter because we we play throughout the farming belt. And I know that there might be some farmers out there listening who who might find this very interesting. What's your primary message to them? Enter with caution. Uh, know, your, know your partners and don't plant without a contract. I think that's, <laughs> that's the best advice we could give at this point. Um, yeah. Do your homework. 
have a plan. Work have with a plan. Trust. You, yeah, exactly. Certainly. Uh, have a plan. Come to the market with, you know, plants and understand that, you know, beyond planting, there needs to be a plan for fertigation, for harvest, for where you're going to sell this material. And, you know, don't just take the word of somebody on a handshake, you know, check them out, find out where your product's going to end up, know where it goes in the market. Yeah. Great advice, I'm sure. So, well, I think it's about time to start wrapping it up. So I just want to say I'm really grateful for both of you coming on to talk about what you know. And I'll make sure that on the article post, when this episode is archived, we'll make sure that there's plenty of information up there so that people know how to find you in case they'd like to look you up. So, yeah. Well, thank you. Um, no, we, we really appreciate the, the opportunity, too. So it's, it's great to talk, and it's, it's great to hear your passion for the land and the climate. It's something we need more of. So thank you. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you very much for the opportunity. You are so welcome. I appreciate your being here. Oh, so it is time to bring yet another show to a close. Once again, I'd like to personally thank my guests, Mike Lewis and Trent Posh, for sharing their insights and knowledge with us today. If you'd like to learn more about the work they're doing at Third Wave Farms, please visit us online at thecannabisreporter.com. Click podcast to find today's episode. And that's where you'll find their bios along with a link to their website. We have so many people to thank. First, I'd like to express our gratitude for our radio partners, Blue Mountain Energy and Canisphere Biotech, for supporting our show. We certainly couldn't be doing this without you. And our media partners at MJ BizCon, Cannabis Radio, and NewsBank for helping us to spread the word. I'd also like to thank my production team here at the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show for always making us shine. And it goes without saying just how much we appreciate our programming directors at XRQK Radio Network and Society Bites Radio for broadcasting our show. And last but not least, thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Snowden Bishop inviting you to join me again next week. Same time, same place for another episode of the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. Until we meet again, be safe, stay informed, share what you've learned, and make it a great day. Evergreen is calling.